because it's intended seasonally. So he's in the midst of something. He's in the process of something. He's unraveling things. And soon does not necessarily mean tomorrow or next week. So I might make the comment to you, winter will be over soon. You know what I mean. You're not like, oh, tomorrow I'm going to get out my bathing suit and fill the swimming pool up because Pastor Paul said winter's over soon. It could be any day now. Well, kind of, but there's a season. We don't know exactly what day it, it will be when the, when the weather turns just enough to when we can be comfortable and put our winter clothes and so forth away. So there are seasons for things. And Jesus uses the word. So that's the, the fir- in the very first verse. So in the very... Last verse in Revelation 22, 20, he says, Surely I am coming soon. Well, you know, when he wrote this book and he instructed John to write it, it's been 2,000 years, right? It's been 2,000 years soon that Jesus is coming. But the clear picture is that there are things in the works. And we're closer to the end than we were to when Jesus, because Jesus came and he inaugurated his kingdom. And he's building his kingdom. He is serving his purposes. He is redeeming all those that he desires to spend eternity with him. The, the gospel message is going out. This is, the oper- this is the age or the season of salvation. And the door will be closed to that. And it's very possible we're closer to the end of that season than we were to the beginning when Jesus inaugurated all these things. And I think part of Revelation is that message of urgency. When Jesus says, I'm coming, he's coming. We don't know exactly when, but he's coming. And so we need to be ready for that. But his kingdom is here. His kingdom is active. And there are things taking place in the spiritual realms and in the physical realms. Not just in our activity, but in the spiritual realms. Revelation uh, lets us in on that. The angelic activity that takes place. The battles raging that we cannot see. God is very busy. In this process. We would not know these things. If God did not reveal. These things. So soon isn't like. How we would expect it. Well as you know. John has been exiled. He's the apostle John. He's been exiled for his faith in Christ. For proclaiming Christ. He's on that small island of Patmos. In the Aegean Sea. And literally it, it's on the Lord's day. And God comes. And visits him. Jesus comes and visits him. And he gives them a vision, such a grand vision, that it's such a glorious vision of the way that Jesus uh, uh, presents himself or manifests himself in these symbols that John just drops as if dead. These, these are big, he's big, he's loud, he's wise, he's radiant, he's rich. He's all of these things in this, in this vision that John has and it sends him to the ground because it's so weighty and it's so glorious. He has a sword coming out of his mouth. There's just a lot of symbolism here. And it's not intended to be taken literally. And you see people drawing, trying to draw pictures of Revelation. The different creatures and, and even uh, I've seen a picture of a stained glass window in a church with Jesus with a sword coming out of his mouth. Well, if you try to draw too many pictures of this stuff, it's just going to really get weird because it's not intended to be taken literally. But we understand what it symbolizes. And this is what we are looking at. So today we're going to begin by examining 
the words that Jesus spoke to the churches. Um, I, I'm assuming you've read ahead and listened to how Jesus addresses his people and his churches. We're going to look at the very first one. And when he speaks to these churches, one thing that is absolutely unmistakable is that Jesus knows what's going on. He just knows. He is so attentive. He is so alert and in tune to his kingdom and the happenings of his kingdom. And he addresses each church uniquely according to uh, the, the areas that they specifically need to be encouraged in and the areas that that church specifically needs to be rebuked in. So we find an address, we find encouragement, rebuke, exhortation, and at the end of each address, there's a promise. There's a promise that, that God gives. There's always hope. As Madison sang to us this morning, there's always hope of what God can do with His vessels. So He shows a detailed knowledge of these things. As we get into these churches, you're going to see that not only does he know the condition of the church, but he alludes to uh, cultural things or geographical experiences of where that church is planted. So when he talks about um, crowns, uh, when he talks about white rocks, these have uh, specific meaning to them. When he talks about the lukewarm water, what does that mean? That he spits us out. That might surprise you. When we get to that, but we're not there yet, so you get to just wait. What do you mean? What He's not going to spit us out? Lukewarm water may have an allusion to something that that particular church was experiencing geographically. So he addresses the seven churches. You know by now that there are more than seven churches in Asia Minor. These are kind of form an, uh, an oval with the first one he starts with Ephesus, and then it goes up, I think, Pergamum is the farthest north and then he comes back around so it's a circuit and literally people would when they read this in the first century they'd say well that's how you would travel if you were going to deliver these letters you'd go to Ephesus and and Smyrna and so forth until you got to Laodicea uh, so there's seven churches they represent uh, the number seven is, is representative of completion so they are unique they're real churches but they represent all churches and so what you'll see is though each one is uh, identified for their particular needs, it can apply to any church. And it is meant to apply to any church. We will find ourselves and you will find yourself in all of these um, exhortations, encouragements, and rebukes. Churches are different. Churches take on different personalities just like people. Churches have different weaknesses and faults just like we do as individuals. So it's worth noting up front that each message has, a, has the same form. So they're formulaic addresses. Jesus identifies himself. He, ad- he addresses himself. He pulls from his description of chapter 1 that sent John on the ground. He pulls from that. He addresses them in that way, identifies. Then he shows how he evaluates the church. He either rebukes and uh, commends a threat, perhaps, and then a promise. And it is related or applied to all that have an ear to hear, which means it's not just the church, it's anybody that reads this has an opportunity to hear the words of God and to obey them. So let's look at Revelation chapter 2, the first seven 
verses. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So here we have it. We're into our letters to the churches. They're addressed to the angels. They were Symbolic of the seven stars that Christ holds in his hands. He tells us that. That's the interpretation. And uh, again, we get this idea. Why didn't he just write it to the pastors of the church? And some commentators even said that this, that's what it means, the stars of the pastors. But there are angels. God employs angels. God created angels to serve him. And they serve him. They do exactly what he commands them to do. They're eager to do this. They have powers to do this. And so we, we learn in um, Daniel chapter 10, verse 13, the prince, he's describing things that are happening in the heavens, but they're manifesting themselves on the earth. He says, the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. He's talking about angels, fallen angels. But Michael, one of the good guys, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia. So it's very clear, and we don't have all the details, and be careful about people that work out a, a sound theology uh, and hierarchy of exactly how angelic beings work, because Scripture just isn't clear, but it is clear that they do work. And God does charge angels over provinces geographically, and He does place them over churches geographically. So God is so good, He's so caring and attentive to churches. Not only does He place leaders in churches, not only does he bring gifted individuals into certain churches, but over them there are angels. Whether it's one specific angel, I don't know. Does he assign one angel, and you, you got to work that church for the rest of your angelic life until redemption? You don't get to get the, work the mega church. You have your stuff. I don't know how it all works, but there are angels that are warring and battling and keeping evil forces away. They are bidding the word of God. This church, as Noah reminded us this morning, was planted by the Apostle Paul. And he also wrote a letter, and he quoted one of the verses out of that. That letter was written to Ephesus in mid-century. The book of Revelation was towards the end of the century. So, with the church identified as Ephesus, notice the form. Jesus describes himself. 
And he, and he, he identifies himself as the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks men among the, the golden lampstands, the seven golden lampstands. That's how he wants to be identified to this particular church. He's the one that's in charge of the angels. But he's also the ones, he's the one that gets down. He's the one that is in your midst. He's walking, he's listening, he's ministering. He knows the people in his church. He knows what we're experiencing. He understands our battles individually. He also understands our battles corporately. He knows what the churches in China are facing. He knows what the churches in Persia are facing. The churches in, in modern day Turkey are facing. All the churches, all of his people that gather around the globe, he is there and he is intimately active in their lives for their own well-being. He identifies himself. He wants to be described as this. He is the one that examines the churches. He diagnoses our lives and our health. And he has the authority to do that and the knowledge to do that. So it's, it's God's plan. It's evidence of the importance of the church. Because he gives this picture of how his people are gathered. How he appoints leaders over them. We are to be the body of Christ. That's his plan. We're to be united. And the church is so important that we find, if you find Christ on the earth, it's in, he's manifesting himself in the presence of the church. The church is his plan to make himself known to the world. So there's, the church just has a, a, a tremendous importance here. That's what he's working with. That's who he's working with, believers in the body of Christ. He's not addressing them individually, though it applies in that way. So note, note that he is addressing people that gather in the name of Christ, that do Christian community together, that, that rally around the Scriptures, that rally around the gifts of the Spirit, that rally around serving Christ. That's where Jesus is active. And I think needless to say, we'll suffer if we're not plugged into this. We'll suffer if we're not a part of this. If this is where God is concentrating His presence, so to speak, and we're not present, then needless to say, we will suffer as individuals if we're not on board with God's plan for the church. Not so long ago, uh, Lisa and I attended an event, we heard a, a testimony about a, a church that's fairly local, that about 10 years ago had a very thriving youth group. And when we heard this testimony, the youth group was almost non-existent just in that short amount of time. And what I found out is the, um, the youth, they still have a youth group, but the youth don't go to church anymore. So it's like it's their own entity. Uh, entity. You, you just don't know what can happen to a church. You don't know how, how people can come and go and how attitudes and convictions and beliefs can change so rapidly. How can that happen in 10 years? How can you have a church with a thriving youth group and then 10 years later, they're not a part of the church itself? There's things that take place. So if we're not completely plugged into what God is doing, then we may suffer for it. So perhaps these 
encouragements and revelations to the churches in this book will also encourage us and maybe cause us to dig into and be enlightened to the importance of the church. So there he is. He's walking in the mist. He's the God that knows. He's the God that is there and the God that is present. What does he notice as he's walking in the mist of Ephesus? He throws out compliments. Here's what he notices. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. What a commendation. I mean, how cool would that be for us to receive a letter that points out things that we do well from God Himself. I mean, that is absolute. Who would not long, or what church would not long for that kind of compliment from the Lord? It's kind of like the, well done, my faithful servant. Well done. So Christ notices these things. He, he understands the sacrifice. There's nothing that escapes His attention here. You know, there are plenty of people or plenty of churches that go at things half-heartedly, not this church. I mean, they're in it. There are churches that might be apathetic or lethargic, not this church. They are toiling. They are working hard. Uh, There are many churches today in particular that do tolerate evil. They tolerate evil very much. Anything goes under the name of Well, God is love, and so we just need to love and tolerate everybody and anything, no matter what. Not this church. This church is on it. This church believes in righteousness. If if somebody's out of line and it gets to the point even of church discipline, they recognize it. Look, there's good and evil, and this, this scripture says we can't have this. You need to repent or go. So they're on this. They take the scripture seriously in this sense. Doctrine. Boy, they're tight on that too. They, they hold it very dear. They search the Scriptures and they're discerning. They don't just let anybody into their pulpit. And he even says that he commends them for hating things. Well, that's not... That's like hate speech in today's culture. For him to say, you even hate what I hate, the Nicolaitans. So we don't know exactly who these people were, this cult was, but they're kind of uh, in the same group of, of Jezebel or Balaam. They're evil, they're cultic, they're probably uh, immoral in many, many ways. They have terrible practices to the point that whatever their deeds are, they're immoral, they're impure, and Christ in no uncertain terms says, I hate them too, and you do well to hate them. It's an offense. It's an offense. There are things that offends God. There are things He likes and dislikes. It's not this mushy stuff in the middle. There are clear lines. And He says He hates it. You know, what practices do we hate? Are, Are there things that we just, based on scriptural convictions, because God dislikes them, we dislike them? They turn our stomachs as well? We we want to get rid rid of them as well? Or we want to to corral it or try to bring good out of it or save it or redeem it? What kind of things do we draw the line on? If, there's, if we're believers or, 
or a church that never draws a line on anything, then something's wrong. That's a sign of, that's not a sign of being healthy because you're so inclusive. Spiritually, it's a sign of being unhealthy. God makes righteous deeds and unrighteous deeds clear. Just this week, Church of England, I read about it. Church of England now sanctions and blesses same-sex marriage. You want a blessing? Come, we will bless you. In the name of God, in the name of Christ, we'll bless your same-sex marriage. You know, where, is, where do we draw the line? Where do we say, wait a minute, Scripture says that. I don't have all the answers, but wait a minute. Scripture says this. This can't be good. This is offensive to God. And if it's offensive to God, it's not good for us. It's not good for our community. It's not good for our society. So they are actually commended for this. And I don't think it's if he commends them, it's not some kind of self-righteous, like, well, we're, we're more righteous than these other places or these other churches or these cults. It's not a matter of that. It's a matter of defending truth and the righteousness of Christ. We want to understand the mind of Christ and what He calls good, we want to call good. That's part of sanctification. If there are things in my life that I call good that God doesn't like, I need to conform them to the image of Christ. That's part of what being a Christian is. It's weighing these things out, weighing our motives. The culture's always going to bring us challenges. We're always going to be tested in our discernment. Okay, but what does Scripture say about this? The world's crazy about it. My friends are crazy about it. And I really want to do it. But what does Scripture say about this? This church was very discerning in that way. So they're hardworking. They're not slouches. They're very busy in that sense. They're very disciplined. They take righteousness seriously. They're very discerning. They take God's Word seriously. They don't just let anybody into the pulpit just because they have a a flashy thing to say or or some kind of so-called powerful testimony that can't be validated or proven. They're just careful about these kind of things. They test things, verse 2. You know, in that day, the apostles, you, you can read the book of Acts, the church took off. I mean, people were getting saved and converted left and right, and there weren't enough mature Christians to put over them all the time. Like, you just didn't have that. And this happens today, too. When the gospel goes into places, people are getting saved, and there's only a few people that even know the scriptures. What do you do? Well, you, you, you try to make a circuit. You, so in that day and age, the Apostle Paul traveled, a lot of the apostles traveled, and those that were more mature in the faith, they didn't always get the same, stay in the same spot. They had to go take care of this issue in this church and this issue in that church until they could finally be established. The same th- thing happened with the revivals with uh, the Wesley brothers. When they went and um, the revivals with, under Edwards and Whitfield and so forth, people were getting saved by the droves, but there were not enough mature Christians to lead them. And so the Methodist pastors, they just went on circuits, and they covered lots and lots of territory to try to bring peace and harmony in God's Word to these people. So immature Christians didn't run off, start believing um, things that were false. Well, it was the same thing for this. And so you'd have apostles, you'd have... Apostles, so-called teachers, uh, they would take it. They see this new group of people. They're very zealous. They want to serve God. 
And they see, at, see it as an opportunity to exploit. Wow, they'll do anything for this God. If I can just get in there, maybe I can get some of that zeal and some of that money. Maybe I can get some of that loyalty. And so there were lots of false teachers in the early church. We have false teachers today. We talked about it in uh, false teaching and false understanding in our Sunday school this morning. There are still um, cults and her- heresy that we have to battle in the churches. So this church was aware of that. And just because somebody called themselves an apostle or was flashy or spoke in a flashy way, they think, ah, what, what are you saying? How does it line up with Scripture? If you're not the real deal, I'm sorry, you've got to go. Christ commends that kind of thinking. It's not restrictive. It's not being too picky or uppity when you use Scripture as the guide and not your own personality. Today, there's all kinds of things that the church is faced with, and we all could use some discernment. I think about the countless Christian books. A lot of times, they're bestsellers today. And Christians eat them up. They absolutely love them. They're catchy. They're motivational. And they're very fun and easy to read. But in the end, what you see mostly is a message of self, the greatness of self, with a few scriptures sprinkled in. Instead of a message about the greatness of God and how He can redeem even sinners such as ourselves. If there was ever a time or a need for discernment, it is today in the church because now the info age, we have access to We don't have to wait for a false teacher to come and want to come in. You just click a few buttons on your computer and you have access to every catchy, motivational, and possibly false teaching or bent on a particular scripture that there is. So to their credit, the Ephesians, would they were able to see through these things. They were firm in the Word of God. They weren't sure. They'd dig deeper until they got to the bottom of it. So they're hardworking, disciplined, discerning, and they're persevering. I know that you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and you've not grown weary. It's not easy to live for Jesus, right? You get labeled as a Jesus follower. There are people that don't appreciate that. And sometimes there's different levels of of punishment and persecution that comes as a result of that. They didn't run from it. They weren't just in it for the feels. They just weren't in it for what it could get them. They took it. They were tough. They hung in there. They counted the cost. They dug in when times were rough. They had enough spiritual cardio, you might say. Enough spiritual endurance so that they didn't just, just, just conk out at the least little bit of resistance to their faith. So they have all these things. And then comes the rebuke. And I'll be frank with you. When I was first reading the book of Revelation, I usually take a book and I read it several times. I'm reading this. I read this wonderful compliment. And then comes this rebuke and I, and I just thought, oh, They're doing so many things right. Can't you just leave it at that? Just leave it at the encouragement. You have to bring the thing that they're not doing right in. It almost seemed harsh to me, quite frank. You mean a church could be doing five things right and one thing wrong, and you're going to say something about it? Mm -hmm. So he says, I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. You didn't abandon the doctrine. Didn't abandon the works. Didn't abandon the grit and the perseverance. 
of all things they let slip was their love. Their first love. And they're called to repent. And the way they repent is you go back and love the way that you did at first. Love me like you did at first. However that looked was what Christ is rebuking them for. We all go through ups and downs in our lives, right? In our spiritual walk, we go up through, through ups and downs. We have times where we're more on fire for the Lord than we're not. We have times when we're eager to meet the Lord in the morning and other times we're looking for excuses not to meet the Lord in the morning. That, that's human. Now, we should always be full steam ahead, but we're not. That's human. Christ died for those things. God gives us grace. He walks us through it. He is patient, just like this church. But when an entire church becomes characterized by a particular sin, it is far worse. It is far more powerfully contagious and effective. It is far more dangerous to the point where Christ threatens, if you will not repent and change, church, then I may come and remove the lampstand representative of His presence. D.A. Carson says, this isn't a church then that's backsliding morally or doctrinally. It's checking out the teachings or that it's short on zeal in terms of persevering, sticking with it. They can find enough bodies at the Sunday school classes and find enough bodies to do their door-to-door knocking. They face some persecution. They can face it. But there's... No joy in the Lord left. They're doing it because they do it. Well, we're Christians. We do these kind of things. And there's no love for the Lord in it anymore. Can you imagine? I mean, we're going to be introduced to churches that are called churches. But how can you have a church that can do all these things but doesn't love God like they ought to? Or there are going to be other churches that do love God and they're very zealous, but they don't care about doctrine. You have lazy churches. There's all these, there's an array of weaknesses. There's an array of failures. Whole churches can take on a particular, not just individuals. As we know individually, some of us will come here and we're on fire and others are, are at the bottom. But corporately, what do, are we characterized as? Because when it becomes a, a, a character, when it becomes a, a solid identity, then it's very dangerous that you have an entire church that is slipping in this particular area. Now, I don't know what their attitude exactly was. You know, maybe they just thought, I got to stip stiff upper lip and and I'm going to just do what God tells me to do whether I like it or not and it got to the point where it didn't matter anymore. They just went through the motions. You know, maybe they were like Peter and said, well, you know, you guys might slip in your duty to God but we're not going to do it. We're going to remain faithful. And yet all along, how, how is it even possible that individuals to the point where an entire church has lost their delight 
and their adoration of God and is functioning on a very high capacity in other areas. Yet failing Him in this. And talk about a God who is attentive. He doesn't miss anything. And talk about a God who is relational. You mean it matters how much I really love Him? Yeah. It really matters how much we love God. He is a relational being. He calls us to Himself to remain in Him, to abide, to abide in Him. He loves us to the point of death. He wants that kind of reciprocal attentiveness pointed back to Him. Though we're saved by grace through faith, but it's, it's a faith that works, James tells us. It's a faith that loves And following Christ is complex. There's all these different parts to it. But one of the parts in being zealous and being obedient is to not forsake our joy and our delight just loving Him for who He is. Now there's something to say about all the hard work. But the delight is a very important part of serving the Lord. It's not just about the feels. God isn't a feeling. But He wants our whole heart, right? He wants our emotion, every emotion. He deserves it and He wants it. He wants us to be excited about it. And so, He says, you know, repent. Genuine Christianity, though it involves, absolutely you've got to have good doctrine, absolutely you have to have good morals. And absolutely, we have to have a delight in the Lord. Adore the Lord. It's good to do these other things. We don't want to stop doing them because we're not doing the one. But we want to do the one. We want to repent and do the one that we are not doing. And a lack of love in this context is is actually labeled as a sin. I I rebuke you for this. This I have against you. It's a sin and it needs to change. A lack of love of all things. So he says, get it back. So what we would need to do is ask ourselves, what if that's where we are, what do I need to do to get it back? What does that look like for me to repent? Well, what kind of things did I do when I was first in love with Christ? Where was the excitement? What did I long for? Uh, You could think about your marriage and your relationship, when it starts to grow dry, what do you do? Well, you rally it. We, we need to do date nights again. All right, let's do the date nights. We're, we're kind of falling apart here. Now, we need to write each other little notes of encouragement again. Okay, let's do that. All the special things you did when you first got married, you can revive those things and be attentive to those things. So where did we go off board to lose our love? Did we just start neglecting the devotions and then, and then we just don't have them anymore? Did, we, did church just become too much of a bother? We couldn't get up early enough and so we're not plugged into the body of Christ anymore? These things that fuel us, our Christian friends and close fellowship or care group or Bible study that we used to thrive on, well, we, maybe we just kind of let these things go. Where did we get off track to the point now our hearts are cold? And whatever it is, we need to make the efforts to go back and reinstitute those things and get our hearts back in love 
with God. I would love to think that love is one of those things, if anything, that just lasts forever. You don't have to do anything. It's maintenance-free. I'll just love God without any effort because my heart loves Him so much now. There'll never be a time where my heart will stop loving God. There may be a time. That's very possible there will be a time. Love, even loving God, just like love and marriage needs to be maintained. Get away for a while. Do something romantic. Love for God needs to be maintained. And there's lots of ways we can do that. Christ threatens to remove that loving presence and attentiveness if they fail to repent. So geographically, I said that a lot of times in these addresses to the church, there's allusions to what might be happening geographically to these churches. They, you know, we, we have our own uh, strengths and weaknesses at a, as a county. We're known for certain things. We have a workforce and and so forth. You got Fort Pickett and Blackstone. You got the crew. You got the railroad museum and the railroad. So we're we're known for different things. We have a water shortage. They're always talking about. Should we combine all our water? No, we can't do that. The different towns go back and forth. So what was going on in Ephesus that might relate to what Christ is exhorting them? Ephesus, as you know, it was a very busy city. It was an active city during this time. It was absolutely booming. Uh, there were theaters. There were arts. There were temples, lots of pagan temples and so forth. Um, and... Uh, they had a port there so people could bring their boats in and do their trading. They had a strong economy, strong culture, strong market. This is where the Apostle Paul went and he caused a riot because they were like, Artemis is our God. And he said, uh, all those gods that you have, they're fake. <laughs> they're false. You might as well throw them out and it crashed the economy because idolatry was such a big thing in there. And they got very, very... Upset. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians, they cried. So that was how it started. But the ports that led to the city, uh, they began to fill with silt. And so the city, uh, big, the bigger boats at first and then the smaller boats, they could no longer get into this city. And they didn't have the means to dredge like we dredge rivers in this day and time. Well, we just dredge it back out so the boats can get in. They didn't have the means to do that in that day. So geographically in real life or historically, that city was on the verge of dying in that sense because people couldn't get to it like they once could. And eventually that happened. The city was no longer as vibrant. In, in other words, it was, it was dying in that sense. The church was similar. Once bustling with life, it's lost its fire. And Christ is saying, just like the city, you're doomed to die if there is not repentance. So he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. There's that promise. And there's a promise in every address. To the one that will hear, to the one that will repent. And the conquering, what's the conquering? You've got to conquer what Christ rebukes. It's not conquering Rome here. It's conquering the sin that Christ addresses. You have the sin, but when you conquer it, and if you conquer it, you will spend eternity with me. You will have access to the tree of life. You will never die. 
There will never be that sword that separates you that I placed in the garden when you were exiled. Now you have full access to me. When you conquer in this way, you will not be banished. New Covenant Fellowship. How are we? What are we? Maybe hardworking. Maybe uh, very disciplined. Maybe very discerning. Discerning. Maybe very persevering. But may we never grow our little cold hearts into one big cold heart as a church and defend the living God. May we be diligent to repent where there needs to be repentance in this address to the church. May we change our attitudes, change our habits to ones that delight and adore, absolutely adore the living God in our church and in our home. John wrote it as he was instructed. May God give us the grace to obey it. And may God bless the preaching of His Word.